This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with your host, Dr. Tony Huang. Today, we're with a special guest. Joe, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Tony, thanks so much for having me. I'm Joe Atkinson, and I serve as the Vice Chair and Chief Products and Technology Officer at PwC. Wow, that's a really awesome position you got. What was your journey like? How did you become the Chief Product and Tech Officer at PwC? Yeah, I'm, I'm biased. I do think it's an awesome position, by the way. I do enjoy the job a lot, but... Uh, I've been with PwC now for 30 years. So actually this June will be 31. Uh, so it has been quite a journey. We could probably take the whole time of your podcast just talking about 30 years, but I'll give you the I'll give you kind of the cliff notes. Over 30 years, I've really spent a lot of time in the tech, media, and telecom space. That was the kind of the consulting industry segment where I worked in the most. So I worked in that industry for many years. I, I ran our tech, media, and telecom consulting business. And then now about six, seven years ago, our CEO, senior partner, Tim Ryan, asked me to join the leadership team as our first chief digital officer. So I started on a journey of transformation in the firm. How do we enable our people with different technology and capability? How do we upskill them? And that experience over the first three, four years that I worked with Tim on his leadership team, a couple of years ago, he asked me to take on uh, the chief product and technology officer role, which essentially encompasses all of our technology strategy. It's the strategy around the tech that we use to run and operate the firm. It's the technology we use to deliver our services. And then we have a business where in very specific places, we license assets to our clients where they pay us as a software provider, essentially. And that's uh, that's all part of our products and technology organization. Wow, that's really exciting. Um, so in the past, like, 30 years, what were some, like, big trends that you saw? Like, what were, what were like, cool moments um, in that? Like, you're, you're, you're way older than I am. So you've seen all, like, the thing, like, all of the My cool stuff come and go, all of the trends come and go. What really stuck? Yeah, there. you know what, Tony, one of the great privileges of being anywhere for 30 years and certainly having a career like mine, you see a lot. Uh, but there are a few things that stick. And and as you've been at it for a while, what, what strikes you is that a little bit of everything old is new again, even though these technologies that we're all talking about, and I'm sure we'll talk about today, are incredibly new, incredibly innovative. But we've watched these trends happen before. And I always go back uh, to the late 90s when we watched kind of the explosion of the internet. We watched the online retail really come to life. Uh, there are a lot of people, with all due respect to our, our friends that are really, really good in the in the retail space today, there were a lot of people doing that kind of work in the late 90s. So many of them just didn't make it over the hump and, and didn't get the scale. So that was an exciting time watching all of this technology that previously had been kind of the world of, you know, the, the computer science departments at colleges and universities and Department of Defense contractors, those types of things. All of a sudden it opened up to the world. It feels very similar to what we're seeing right now in generative AI. Yes. Speaking of Gen AI, that's like the really, really hot stuff uh, yeah. going on in industry. 
um, like sizzling hot. But I remembered before JNAI really took off a couple of years ago, it used to be edge computing. AWS was pushing real heavy into like edge computing for manufacturing. And we were seeing these like new things come out of um, the AWS lab, like such as like these like cheaper, more affordable edge devices. But then when yeah. I took took over it, that was like the the talk of the town. Is that what you're seeing over at PwC and your clients? Like, is that is that the main talk? It, it is unquestionably the main talk. And, you know, over the years, watching some of these technologies develop, whether it's edge computing, cloud, when cloud evolved and, and became part of the mainstream discussion, everybody was moving from on-prem to cloud. You looked at even uh, kind of pervasive internet and mobile computing and all of those trends. I have to say that I can't think of one that kind of took over the conversation in the C-suite quite as dramatically as generative AI has. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that we could explore in the discussion, but but uh, it is absolutely the hot topic. Um, I, I don't have a conversation with an exec, even if it's not the primary reason we're talking, I don't have a conversation with an executive or a client or a board member right now that doesn't include generative AI at some level. Right. Yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of board members and and C-suite personnel. And they've all said that is the number one talk of the town. They even are getting initiatives from from their board of directors. So yeah. from the very top all the way down, there's a big transformation in terms of like every industry is is getting Gen AI integrated into their business, regardless of what vertical that they're in. Um, yeah. And yeah, so how are you guys preparing for like the future? I I see that. You guys recently, I mean, not, when I say recent, I mean within the last, say, six to nine months, yeah. announced that you guys are doing like a big billion dollar investment in Gen AI. Walk me through that. Like, are you guys sure. upscaling your 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 internal folks? Are you guys doing like uh, infrastructure changes? What are you guys spending the $1 billion on? Yeah, it's a great, great question. We're, we're excited about it, to be clear. It's a really important initiative for us. Uh, and it is funny when you say it, uh, recently, and, and most of the time that I've been in my career, six to nine months would feel very recent. In the world of generative AI, it feels like 100 years ago all of a sudden. But six to nine months ago, back in April, we announced our $1 billion investment. We announced it in concert and collaboration with our partners at Microsoft and OpenAI. And that was a really, really important, frankly, message to our clients and to the market that, that we saw what a lot of people saw, which is that we we fully expect that professional services, the way we've come to know it, will be very different in the future because of generative AI. And by the way, I see that as a really good thing. Uh, we can come back to that one. But if we, if to your point, how, how are we thinking about that billion dollars? It's all of the things that you said. It's the infrastructure necessary to run large-scale cloud models and all the things that we're all talking about. It's also the training that our people need. Um, we've, we feel very strongly that if you're an employer of any significant scale, you have a degree of an obligation. And obviously the employee has, a, has an obligation to meet you, but, but you have an employer obligation to really make the skills and capabilities available that can help somebody get to wherever it is that you're headed. And we're, we believe we're headed to a gen AI powered professional services model. And so in that world, we want our people to be equipped. We want them to know how to responsibly use that technology. We want to know the risks. We want to know how they can mitigate those risks. But just as importantly, I'm an optimist on this technology. We want them to know how to take advantage of it, how to innovate on that platform, how to experiment and learn. And so that's a really important pillar for us. And then, of course, our clients are facing all of these challenges as well. So part of our investment is to help really craft the kinds of services and capabilities that our clients expect. And that's that's been another area that we're seeing really, really high interest. Clients are coming to us on responsible AI. How do we how do we create the safe environment that we're all looking for in the use of AI tools? 
They're looking at us and asking us for help with governance. And we're helping a lot of clients figure out the right governance models over AI because it's kind of taken over every, every corner of enterprises. And they're also asking us to help them think about how do they move these massive numbers of case studies and, and use cases that are coming through and actually convert them into something actionable with return? And what does the factory models look like and all those kinds of things? So uh, it's been an exciting and, and very fast moving six to nine months since that April April announcement. Yeah, it, it, the, the Gen AI um, sector moves way faster than any other sector that I've ever seen. Like I've seen products and and frameworks get deprecated within like six months compared yeah. to like the decades that it would take for something in, in production to be deprecated. What are you guys currently building right now that kind of allows your clients and like allows um, like people that are interested in using cons like your consultant services to be able to like keep your keep their product from being so like becoming deprecated and becoming old very fast and especially in, in such a high high pace environment that we're in right now. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a great question. And I think the reality is in the, in the pace of the environment we're in right now, I think most of us that are responsible for directing investments on large enterprises are accepting cautiously, but accepting that some of our investments are not going to pay off. Uh, we know that some of these experimentations are going to get replaced by capability in the marketplace. And I think that's okay, so long as everybody's being thoughtful and methodical about how you go about it, you have the right governance, all those things. But from our perspective, if you believe what we believe, which is the professional of the future in consulting, in tax, in audit, that the professional of the future has to have access to the most powerful generative AI tools to be effective, valuable, to be efficient, then you have to equip them all with it. And one of the biggest things that we've done in our infrastructure investments is we've deployed what we call Chat PwC, which is powered by OpenAI. And it is essentially our OpenAI implementation inside our environment, working on our Azure stack so that our people can use it safely without worry that if they put something into the model that it's going to inform a public model, because obviously we, we take our responsibility for our clients' data very seriously. I think that space, we already see that space evolving. OpenAI is headed down OpenAI Enterprise. You see the plugins model. There's a lot of other pieces that are coming together. But that capability to say to all of our people, I want you to play in a safe way inside the firm with this technology and capability because as all these other innovations come, I want you to be prepared to take those and make the most of them. Um, I I believe strongly that the the differential, that the 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 ability to really create differentiated value, it isn't going to come from the large language models. Those those are very quickly being commoditized, really powerful commodities, but very very quickly being commodities. And there's some people that believe that it won't even come from proprietary data because the relative size scale impact of the proprietary data versus the large amounts of data that are available in the public domain may not give you enough differentiated value. So that, that all sends you to a place that says, okay, if that's the reality, then the difference we believe is going to be people that can take advantage of the tools and have the agility to kind of work through all these changes and do it in a responsible way. So that's that's a big part of our focus. And at the same time, we're really looking at this plug-in strategy to say where we do have differentiated data, let's make sure the models are available to our people very rapidly. I like the that approach of you guys building your own chatbot internally, because there's been a lot of news releases where like these big software companies, they, they've released like an article where their um, software developers accidentally put in proprietary code into ChatGPT. 
And then now, you know, that becomes open, uh, open source because of the fact that it's going to be retrained uh, through their engine. So this is really refreshing to see that you guys are taking that type of initiative after seeing uh, other tech giants kind of like um, uh, trip over themselves at, because they're going too fast and are using it too fast. So it's really nice to see that you guys have something in place for responsible AI. I'm curious as to your stance on the executive, uh, the executive order that was signed by President Joe Biden. Um, yeah. big push right now in the government space where they want to basically basically be able to catch up to China because that's that's basically what that bill was signed because of. Yeah. Um, what's your hot take on like um, the bill as well as these AI acts, such as like the EU AI Act that was signed last year? What's your take on government entities finally taking notice of AI and doing something about that? Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot in there, and and let me let me start with um, I actually want to come back to your other point because I think you made such an important point about the speed with which companies are moving and and the likelihood that people are going to have footfalls. And and by the way, we all live in glass houses on this point, right? There's lots of risk in the innovation speed. I do think that 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 comes back to governance, and it comes back to do you have the approach, the understanding of what the implications are, and are you investing in the knowledge that people that are using those tools need in order to make responsible use of them? And that is, I'm not even sure it's easy to say, but it's certainly not easy to do. So I think that's foundational, and that actually leads to your second question, to your point, which is, you know, the government positioning right now, the executive order in the U.S. that came out, I think, end of October, quickly followed by the EU's and the the Blakely, uh, Black, uh, I'll, I'll get the I'll get the pronouncement wrong, but the park, the the famous park that's not coming to me right now. Um, uh, so Bletchley, right? there we go. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that, that, was, yeah that was a very park. famous park. Yes, very famous. There's so yeah. much that came out of it. And, and today my my brain was failing me, which is what generative AI is for probably. So, but if you look at these innovations that are coming as people come together, what what's important about it? From my perspective, I think your, your um, starting point that this is about who will control the future from a from a nation state perspective, there's no question as you talk to, to people in government that they're thinking about that. And they're thinking about that as the competitive position of various countries and regions of the world. And I think that is no different, frankly, than just about any other topic we could find everywhere. We're all trying to position our, our respective nations for growth and prosperity and safety and all those things. But the, to me, the other interesting piece, the really interesting piece is what does smart regulation look like? And we, we have been on record at PwC saying we do think that this is a space where a thoughtful, intelligent application of regulation makes sense. It's moving quickly. It is a, it is a ripe area for government regulation. Having said that, of course, everybody would say the, the the other side of the coin, which is the right regulation, thoughtful regulation, but you do not want to actually tamp down the innovation to such a degree that you lose this race that we're all talking about. So I think there's good intentions. I think there is a desire. One of the things that's really been striking is the desire that regulators, uh, elected officials have to be educated in this space. They're hungry for the education. So for any listeners out there, that are looking for opportunities to kind of influence the dialogue, I think through your trade associations, through any of the organizations that you may be part of from that perspective, as well as your elected officials. I suspect that most of your elected officials, if you said to them, I want to share with you what we're doing, um, many of them are going to be pretty open to that because they're all trying to climb a very, very steep learning curve. Yeah, I'd say education right now is number one. Uh, I, I put that at the very top because there are um, notions from people who don't understand AI that um, either think it's going to take over everything, or they've played with it and they it, it's not getting them the output correctly because they're not you know prompting it correctly or using it 
uh, yeah. with the correct tonality. Um, so I think education would be able to get everyone centered and be able to educate them and, and as as well as make them understand that it's not something that is going to take away your job. It's there to like uh, be like a like a force multiplier to make you be uh, like be a better like person worker, uh, be able to enjoy your work, be able to do a lot more stuff at work with less time. And that's where I kind of want everyone to be. It's it's kind of like my mission right now is to, to try and like upscale and educate people. Like, what are you guys doing right now in order to like educate people? Or do you guys have an academy, like a gen AI academy that all the other companies have? Like for instance, like, a, yeah. like Accenture has the Accenture Academy or or something like that. Do you have something similar? We do, we do, um, and I think your I think your starting point on the the need for education here is so huge. And I'll come back to our academy, which we call My AI. It's a training program for all of our people. And uh, the fun part about it, Tony, has been not only do we see the need, but our people are hungry for it. So the engagement and the adoption has been amazing. But I want to come back to something else you said, which was the the fear factor that everybody has about these technologies and why I do think education is such an important part of overcoming that. Unfortunately, and this is true on this topic and lots of other topics, it is a lot more fun to, to report on or highlight the failures and the risks of something than it is to highlight the opportunities that somebody something presents or the, the promise that something presents. And even the executive order that the president's team wrote, the, the opening paragraph was about the promise and peril of, of AI and, and generative AI. And it just sometimes, I think, causes us all human nature to lean to the peril side and miss the promise side. The promise to me is exactly what you just articulated beautifully, which is how do we actually create this force multiplier? It, it can help us do everything better. And it, it as people say everything, people will immediately react to that and say, well, that's the hype cycle talking. And there is some hype in here. But the reality is we know what this progression looks like. We can see it already. If we know what the progression looks like, then some really, really hard problems are going to get a lot easier when you can pair a capable thoughtful, well-trained individual with a powerful piece of technology like generative AI. So that brings us full circle back to my AI. So how are we thinking about that? Well, you'll hear this from me all over the place because it's just so core to who we are. It's core to our culture. It's core to our values. We start with responsible AI. It's foundational in everything we're doing. That is of the curriculum that we're offering our people. It is the only piece that we are requiring as a starting point. That has to be your, your, um, your gate. The next piece that we're requiring is prompt engineering. So we talked about prompting and the importance of really understanding that. One of the things that our remarkable teams have done that are building Chat PwC is they've created assistance to help people create more effective prompts, which allows them to think more broadly than most of us have been trained to think, frankly, in these technology interactions. We think in terms of search. This isn't search, as you know, right? So, the, so that requires a different engagement with the capability to get the kind of results that everybody's expecting. And then you get to this very, very fundamental piece, which is what, what responsibility do I have for the output of a generative AI tool or capability or, or, or source? What responsibility do I have as the human? And part of what we're training our people in is you have all the responsibility. You have to be responsible for the outputs that are coming from any technology, including generative AI. And that means if you're not sure whether the output is of the right quality, if you're not sure the citation is correct, you have an obligation in our perspective, you have an obligation to double check or to get a second set of eyes or to use a complementing technology to evaluate it. So that that approach and that that um, force multiplier, as you said, and that we call it human-led and tech-powered. That's the way that we think about it from the approach of the firm. We believe a really well-trained, thoughtful person with integrity that's using these technologies responsibly, coupled with a powerful technology, 
it's going to get a lot more done just by definition. Yeah, that I totally agree with everything that you said. In fact, I, I think that having that human in the loop at the end of your um, workflow is so essential to get, getting the correct and precise output that you need so that you don't uh, inadvertently, you know, cause like uh, reputational damage, for instance, to your company or, you know, uh, God forbid that you're in like the healthcare field and it outputs like a result that says like you have cancer when you don't have cancer. So it's like um, there's a lot of bad things that could happen if you don't put that human in the loop within your workflow, especially around Gen AI, especially definitely, definitely around Gen AI. I've seen a lot of companies like not put a human in a loop anywhere yeah. in their workflow and just went all Gen AI powered. And uh, usually those PR releases are not uh, yeah. well received, you know? <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of risk in those, but you, you make a great point. Healthcare is a perfect example. And we, we have a uh, really nice relationship with Carnegie Mellon University. And so a lot of the, the academic teams there are looking at this question about what is the relative risk of the output of a Gen AI model? And one of the things I, I think is happening and they're seeing in the research is our tolerance level for what I accept as a, as a I'll call it a robotic output or an automation output or a generative AI output, our tolerance level will continue to climb as the technology gets better and the technology gets more robust and the controls and the governance all become more, more strong. At the same time, there are areas of my life that I'm not ready to turn over to a computer in any way, shape or form, including generative AI. And that understanding of where am I in, in the risk? Is it organizational risk? Is it individual risk? Is it privacy considerations? Is it societal considerations? And can I understand where I am in, the, in that risk matrix? Because if I can understand where I am in the risk matrix, then my acceptance for tools to do certain things would change. Like if, if AI is going to run my toaster in the morning, I'm probably going to be fine, right? If it's going to put it out on the plate or figure out how long it's got to toast based on my habits, great. If AI is going to fly the plane, all of us are going to have a pause, right? So now will it get further and further and further? And our, I think our tolerance will get higher and higher and higher. I do think that's just a natural progression of technology. In fact, we've seen that Already, anybody that uh, looks at their lane indicator instead of their mirror knows that they're relying on the tech instead of their eyes. But that's, that may be okay once we know that the technology is getting to the level of robust and, and consistency. I, I like your story on the trust versus the risk factor, right? So it's like if you had an AI that predicted the weather, you would put that on a much lower scale of, yeah. of risk because you know if it doesn't rain when it says it's raining, I wouldn't care. If it were to be like a credit bureau, for instance, using it to determine whether or not you got to get a, like a a loan for a house, then yes. yes, you know, definitely it's it's definitely extremely high. Yep. So yes, definitely, uh, it, I agree with what you said about your level of trust versus the um, uh, level of risk that you would put. Um, for, furthermore, I would say like the in order to get that to that stage in which you can you can balance those two, you really need to have like education. Because right now there's such a low supply of AI experts out in industry. If you go on LinkedIn, everybody is putting like Gen AI expert as their tagline for some reason. So like, how, how do you like vet through like people that are saying like they're these AI experts? Do you have any like tips and tricks as to like being able to identify like real talent versus like the wannabes that just want to grab onto that, this like wave that's happening? It's a really good question and uh, one we talk about a lot because obviously we've got a lot of great homegrown talent, but but in this space, you want to also bring in people that can help you think bigger and broader and all those things. And so sorting that out is difficult. 
And when you think about how quickly this space has emerged, you have a, a lot of people that are looking at generative AI for the first time in the last 18 months. Uh, and so you, you start to ask this question about what, what does real expertise look like? And one of the one of the things um, that that I always remind people is you actually have to go back to like the late '50s to to actually find and you probably know this better than I do given your background to actually find the fund the foundational call it the 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 fundamental technology investments and research that created what we now know as machine learning and AI. And that continued to advance from the 1950s and some of the early models and got better in the 60s and the 70s and computational power grew and all these things happened. And the way that we trained models changed. So that that advance feels like it just happened last week. But the reality is it's a it's a subject of decades of research and capability. And responsible AI is a great example. We've actually been talking about responsible AI for seven or eight years. And that was as we watched the emergence of some of these models. Now, does that mean we're the world's experts on it? There's a lot of expertise out there and, and we're happy to connect with it and collaborate and do all the things that you've got to do. But to your point, I think there are a lot of people that want to believe that if I'm a good prompt engineer, I'm a generative AI expert. Those, those are both important skills, but they may not be the same ones. And I think organizations really have to think about what are the foundational capabilities? What, what are the pillars that you want to build your generative AI program on? It probably requires deep data science understanding. It definitely requires deep computer science, cloud computing capacity, computational understanding. It requires investments in people as well as the technology infrastructure. And I've said to a lot of clients over the last six to eight months, if, if you don't have any of that, start with training. It's really important. Frankly, if you do have any of that, start with training get people up to speed on this. But if you don't have those pieces in place, it is a good time to start looking at who you're going to partner with because it's moving so quickly. Or if you think it's so core and critical to where you're headed and it's core and critical to a lot of people, it's time to start making the investments in your AI factory, your cloud and digital capability, your data infrastructures, the knowledge of where your data is, what's the quality of that data, all those things. So I, I think there's a lot of people, um, I was out at CES in January in Las Vegas, um, and it seemed like no matter what the product was, it was AI powered, uh, back to AI powered toasters. Uh, so everything was out there in CES, but the reality is it, it was not all true AI and sorting through that means you've got to have the right experts in your organization or by your side to help you figure that out. So uh, speaking of like uh, being able to take these experts and and like building out these products, what do you guys have that's that's like super neat and cool? Spill of beans, like, did you guys build anything that's, can you like disclose any insider tips or secrets or something like that? Yeah, I'll, I'll give a couple. One of the, one of our great privileges, Tony, is the really cool stuff we do, we do with our clients, right? So sometimes it's a collaboration with our clients and those, obviously we, we treat those pretty confidentially. But one of the things I am really proud of is the work that the teams have done on AI as, a, as an assistant uh, to more than the administrative assistants. So if I'll come back to chat PwC because it's one that's inside our shop and we can kind of share it. One of the things that we've allowed our teams to do is they can load up multiple documents in chat PwC. And now we've got uh, plugins that help them write, for example, social media content. And, and this isn't really complicated as those of us that are in the space know. But what is complicated is making sure that you've considered the business process and the change management and the application and how people are going to use it before you just deploy it. And so what our teams have done a really effective job of doing is making sure that not only could it help generate the first drafts of content against human in the loop and that human accountability, but that it does it in the voice. It does it in the governance model. It does it within the framework of what we're permitted to say and not say. 
And I'll give you a very specific example. Uh, we don't talk about our clients in the public press. It's our clients. They, they, that's, that's, their, that's their world. They can talk about themselves if they like, but it's not our job to do that. But there are so many companies that are in this space that sometimes our people with good intention will talk about something and not realize they're actually referencing one of our clients. And that's not something we do. So our social media content generation looks for all that. It helps them. And not only does it look for that, it then guides them. So it doesn't just give you the answer. It says, hey, your first draft, here's some things you've got to do. And that iteration, I think, is really powerful. It's a really small example, but I, I often say that a lot of these applications are not necessarily change the world applications. It's going to be this incremental growth of all of these tools that we use, these agents that help us do a lot of the things that absorb a lot of the time on our day. That's really neat. I, I've spoken to a lot of ProServe companies where they've basically built out these like uh, small language models, where, which is for the viewers, a small language model is basically a large monolithic language model. And what that means is that a large language model means like it's chat GPT or sorry, open AI or anthropic. And that gets yep. distilled down to a much smaller model and that can be fine tuned. Um, what I've seen is that they've uh, been able to take these small language models or even something smaller, like a micro language model and be yep. able to fine tune it to an industry, like a very, very hyper-specific industry, such as like HR. They would train um, this micro language model off of HR documents within with the, the same tonality and the same language. And so that when an HR person uses it, it's able to output the correct language that they're looking for. Um, a lot of times I, I've talked to people who say that LLMs or chatbots are not that good. And that's because of the fact that they're looking for a specific language output from the, from the model. So for instance, if they wanted it to write a romantic novel, they obviously want that verbiage to be romantic, not like a comedy. And right. a lot of these like large monolithic models, they, they're just not trained in, in, in that way. So, you know, what I've seen is that we're moving away from these LLMs and going into much something much smaller, lightweight, these micro LLMs. What's your take on that? I think you're spot on. I think you're a thousand percent spot on. And um, I, I, early on, I described um, the, the generative AI as, as really, really robust and very complex guessing machines, right? Because they're just predictive models. Based on the input, what, do I, what does the technology think you're looking for to your point in the language and the output? And what, what I think people are beginning to understand is the power of the model being trained on large language sets is very different than the capability of the model to provide precise outputs based on microsets. And I think that that understanding is certainly getting to be more and more. So I'll give you two examples from our world. The deals business is a huge business for us, a really important one, highly sensitive one. But anybody that's looking at an acquisition or looking at a target or evaluating a landscape wants to get directional precision, then they've got to apply a lot of judgment to it. If you're not targeting that information in the right place, if I, if I simply ask the internet what a great business looks like, I'm going to get all kinds of answers. But if I look at my background in the firm as what are the last 20 most successful deals that our clients have executed, subject to, of course, the restrictions and contracts and all those kinds of things, can I get a more precise model that helps our clients make better decisions on that? Doesn't make the decision for them, doesn't make our decision for them, but gives us another really robust input into the advice. And your, your other point on, on HR language, the other one that we've seen is legal language. So we announced a relationship with Harvey. Um, Harvey's a really interesting legal legal model where it's training on the on the legal world. And we know that there's been some very, very public failures of people using uh, generative AI in the legal space without the benefits of a technology like Harvey. 
And that that's another place where that language is very specific. The rigor is very specific. The requirements are very specific. The, the broad scale internet, if you will, training for that outcome simply isn't going to get you there. You've got to get to a different place. So I think this idea, we, we've been characterizing them as plugins. You could call them micro models, a lot of different ways to think about it. But going from this well-trained, well-read, well-informed I use the word brain, even though everybody that that knows the space hates when I say brain. But this well-informed capability in the generative AI, now trained on the very specific data sets that that can help it point to a more specific area and answer. I think that's the trend, honestly. Now, could there be something five years from now, three years from now, six months from now? Of course. One of the things that's interesting is as you get these more specifically trained agents. Will the agents interact with each other to get to the complementing capabilities? So. I'll come back to legal, right? In the U.S., the firm doesn't practice law, but around the world, we do. We're one of the largest law firms in the world. Well, it is not uncommon that your lawyers are talking to your accountants or talking to your operational people. If you can start to create that kind of targeted capability, you can start to actually have the agents interact with each other to give even more precise, better informed advice. So some really, really interesting, powerful opportunities ahead in this space, again, all subject to safe deployment and thoughtful regulation and responsible use. Yeah, I agree. The, the thing that I think is going to be the hot next frontier is going to be LMs that can do reasoning. So they're yeah. you know, on the frontier side, there's like a lot of movement in this package called QSTAR, which does reasoning for math. And that's shown a lot of promise. And so th th there's a big push into trying to evolve that or, you know, or evolve like a like a product off of that so that you can do some yeah. reasoning on it, on it. And I find that your example of the, of law is really interesting to me because it, if you remember, I think it was like a year ago, there were like two lawyers that used ChatGPT to generate something and it, and it created these fake use cases and they submitted it to the judge and they got into a lot of trouble. Yes. They paid a, a small fee, but the, the reputational damage that you got yeah. from that can can really be detrimental to your firm. And so no you know, we have to start moving away from these large world models, which don't fit what we need to do in our business verticals and go towards more like fine-tuned models. Um, and, and speaking of like of that, do you have any like cool things that you guys are building that are coming in the future in terms of like infrastructure? Are you guys building any type of like training, small language model trainers? Because I know right now that's like the, one of the hottest things on the market is taking... Um, these like infrastructures that that train small language models because it's so yeah. accessible and like building out your own language models. Are you guys doing something similar? We are. We're, we're looking at all that. And uh, before I jump to that, I want to come back to your your lawyer's story because I have a degree. I don't I don't know who those lawyers were. The poor poor people that got cited the front page of the New York Times. Right. Uh, maybe 20 years from now, we will give them proper credit as pioneers that just weren't fully aware, educated, and understanding of the technology. Now, the, the bar might have a very different view of that, that answer, but I do think there's some empathy to be had there as we're all innovating and experimenting. But it also reinforces why human in the loop, verification, responsible use. It's, it's just such a, unfortunately, they were the first. Uh, it could have probably been anybody. They got a little bit of luck of the draw. Uh, but it is it is unfortunately the example that people keep coming back to. And having said that, I also worry about the fact that that example is so well known because people people will not forget, and they shouldn't, that uh, generative AI produced uh, case law that was cited that was wrong, that was just fiction. It was just the classic hallucination language. 
which in some ways has caused people to worry more about hallucinations almost in a disproportionate way, where all the things we're talking about today, the targeted training, the micro models, actually starts to address that problem in, in scale. Um, so it's just, to me, it's a very important point because I think people who have read some of these things, they love to talk about those. And again, they're important, but understanding what is happening in the technology space to address them, I think is equally important to making sure you don't let this opportunity pass you by. So now to your actual question, which was, you know, are we thinking about uh, rapid micromodel training? The short answer is yes. So one of the one of the first things that we did when we launched our uh, investment, and we didn't say this as publicly, so there's a little bit inside baseball. We put together uh, a team of about 260 people. We have the benefit of some scale at the firm that became part of our what we called our AI factory. They were basically the front door for all the use cases that were coming from our teams. And because of what we do, we're in lots of different industries. We serve lots of different clients. And of course, we're big. We have 75,000 people, give or take, in the U.S., Mexico, and our what we call our acceleration center team members. So that that group of people all have ideas. And so they start to submit these use cases to our factory. Well, the factory, in a course of about two weeks, had 3,000 plus use cases. And anybody that's ever tried to manage a use case, if you try to manage a use case traditionally and say, okay, what's it going to cost? And what's it going to return? How much effort? We would be talking about having gotten through 12 use cases at this point. Like that volume is just not manageable. So they very quickly started to develop this idea around patterns. What are the patterns in the 3,000 use cases? And that very quickly led them to exactly what you're talking about, which is micro-training a model. So we didn't use that language back in April and May when the team started to build these capabilities, uh, but that is exactly what the teams have been doing. And now they're doing it across the disciplines of our firm. Um, we're also doing it on the on the business of the firm, right? So we're business like everybody else. We have back office costs, we have finance and human capital and administrative activities. And we're not in the business generally of just cutting people. What we want to do is make people more efficient so we can grow the firm more aggressively. So we're looking at all of those opportunities and applying essentially those learnings, the micromodel learnings to the way that we conduct our own business, which then helps us have a very, very robust conversation with our clients because we know what works and what doesn't because we've tried it on ourselves. Speaking of which, like if I were a client, like how would I yeah. get in touch with you if I want to learn more? Yeah, I appreciate that. So I'm always happy to get in touch with future clients. Uh, LinkedIn is the best way to get a hold of me. I'm on LinkedIn pretty regularly, and uh, it's a great place to to connect and and just uh, get to know each other. Given like you've been in the the game for over thirty years, yeah. you know, if you had to go back, like what would you do? Would you like yeah. relearn something? Like for instance, would you have gotten more into like neural networks, which is like what's powering a lot of the Gen AI craze? Or would you have switched majors? What what would you have done uh, differently? Yeah, all, all due respect to some friends I stay in touch with who were my professors at Penn State where I came out. As a finance major out of Penn State, I absolutely would change majors. I love my finance program. Now, I, I would I would have liked to have the foundations in finance, but if if I were going back today, if I were starting that journey today, I would be all in on, on the machine learning, on the data sciences, on mathematics models, um, neuromorphic computing. We, we talk a lot about where the emerging technologies are, and there's a great piece on our website about the essential eight technologies that the, we think will shape the future. And AI obviously is one of them, but it's also things like AR and VR, and how does that actually come to life at scale? So there's a, there's a lot of fun places that people can direct their energies and a lot of opportunity in those spaces. Um, I absolutely would be looking at those. The The other interesting one, you know, for everybody that, that uh, learned computer sciences and coding, 
I think that's going to change really dramatically in the coming years as a result of generative AI. So you're going to need people that understand integration systems and ecosystems as much as how to build really high quality code. Now that won't change overnight, uh, but I think that the way that we build systems is probably going to look very, very different in five years or 10 years time than it does today. So I'd be thinking about all those things and probably confusing the devil out of myself trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, I, I've spoken to so many people that they, they the first thing that they said was I'd go back and become like a computer science major. But yeah. then if you look at like, um, you know, the future, obviously you can't predict the future, but uh, uh, there's certain jobs are, are being displaced, but then new jobs that are uh, being built around the technology that displays the old jobs is like popping up. Like for instance, there was something uh, uh, that I looked up online where it was from a major news article, which I won't say, but it said that one of the hottest jobs right now is the like senior executive level AI leader, which yeah. typically didn't exist for the last like five years. So that's like a brand new job that just appeared at a very, very high level. And a lot of large companies now are, are hiring like senior execs with an AI focus, like the credit bureaus, we're seeing like all of the tech uh, giants, obviously. It's very interesting to me to like think about like the, this new job that's on horizon, maybe five years from now, that yeah. doesn't exist right now, that's coming from a brand new tech that's about to be built on the edge of innovation. And that's very interesting to me. Uh, what's your take? Yeah, Tony, I agree. And it, it probably just reminds us all that actually what you want to do is be, become somebody who's, who agile is probably an overused word, but that lifelong learner problem that we all talk about, do you do you maintain and how do you maintain that energy to keep learning the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing? And I will tell you, I'll confess, after three decades in business, it gets a little harder, especially as the speed uh, is moving. But I do think that that being open to it and, and just recognizing that most of us, most of us, and I include myself in this to be clear, we're behind. We're, we're going to be behind tomorrow when we wake up. We'll be behind the day after that. And the key is, don't fall further behind. Do everything you can to stay at pace. Maybe you'll make some gains if you get the right learnings, you get the right opportunity, you listen to a great po podcast from you, you just get a little bit of progress. And, and I think the, the worst thing you could do, regardless of what your undergrad was, regardless of whether you went to college, didn't go to college, but the worst thing you could do is kind of observe from the sidelines, cross your fingers and hope it works out. I think this, this future will be owned by people that lean in, understand, develop their skills, learn, and keep reinventing themselves because I think that's the name of the game. And then final question, what's your yeah. take on like the future? Like, I'm not going to say like five years because that's too yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> I'll say like, what's your take on like the next 12 to 24 months? And, and I'll go first just because yeah. uh, like- love to hear. So that you have some time to think about it or maybe- yeah. Um, so before the Gen AI craze, it was, uh, edge computing that I saw that was really, really hot. When Gen AI came out, um, everybody was an accidental text prop engineer, whether you yeah. like it or not. So that was like a career path that maybe you could have taken or not. Um, and now there's a big push to, well, in terms of like using LLMs, everyone's using LLMs, but there's a big yeah. problem with the consumption uh, usage of LLMs. So there's a lot of like energy and water that's being used to power these LLMs. Um, you know, there uh, there's a big problem in terms of the transformer framework that powers all of these these LLMs because um, the number of parameters that you use for an LLM uh, requires like a quadratic relationship with the amount of virtual RAM on a GPU, which is a yeah. graphics processing unit that powers most of the LLMs out in the industry. 
So um, there's a big push right now to move away from the transformer architect and go with something that would scale linearly so that when you scale, when you build these um, larger and larger parameter LLMs, the uh, the VRAM um, usage scales linearly. So we don't have this quadratic problem. And I think that's a big um, future step in order to mitigate a lot of the uh, consumption problems that we're having with LMs. I'm just assuming that everyone's got to be use, using some type of yeah. LM. So, um, in in order to like kind of distribute it and give it and give access to more and more people, there needs to be a a, a more efficient framework. I think that's uh, what's going to happen next. Uh, I think that's a, the big revolution within that industry. Um, and then I also think that uh, you know a lot of companies are going to be switching from whatever it is that they're doing. It doesn't matter what you're doing over to you integrating Gen AI in some form or manner, either internally or as an external component. Um, and I think like the easiest starting point for a company would be probably HR, sales and marketing. Um, I, I think those are like probably like the the, the big hot internal uh, things that that people will be integrating into their company, regardless of industry. And then yeah. I also think that um, there's going to be since the demand for LLMs are so high. Uh, I spoke with the VP of research for a, a large uh, university uh, for higher education, and he said that they were integrating AI into every single major, regardless of the major. Yeah. They were hiring AI experts um, that would accompany the department regardless of the major. So that's how that's how important AI is for higher education. So I'm uh, I'm I'm thinking that like every single university moving forward is going to implement AI into their course regardless of the major. Um, what's your take on 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 uh, these predictions? And what's your yeah, look? Um, one of the things I love about future predictions is um, there's very little accountability for any of them. So I can guess and you can guess, which is kind of the fun part of these, right? But what do we what do we vision? Having said that, I think even if we hold you accountable to yours, I think you're going to be right from my perspective for what it's worth. I think your point on integration of AI into all the university programs, like I, I, I make this comment a lot. Uh, there used to be tech jobs and non-tech jobs. In the future, there are just jobs and they're all tech enabled. You have to be comfortable with the tech. Most of us will not have a choice in the future of whether or not we want to feel like we're tech savvy. And, and I think that's a good thing, by the way. I think that that will help uh, address a lot of societal opportunities. I think there's a lot of growth to be had by that. I think your other point on um, the consumption models, um, the, the cloud computing environments and and how are we managing cloud computing environments and how do we look at consumption? I think we're going to see some really, really interesting innovations in how people provide compute capacity. And the more that that becomes a constraint, the beautiful part about our capitalist society is when you have a constraint, usually people rush into the space to try to figure out how to unlock the constraint, take advantage of that constraint for, for a short period of time. That'll create long-term opportunities. So what does that look like? Not sure, uh, but I suspect that the capability to build the kind of capacity that you're talking about is going to start coming from unexpected places, which could be really interesting. The other thing I would say, I, I completely agree with your point, frankly, see it across all of our clients, that everything is AI. But one of the challenges we put on the table for our clients is to start thinking about whose AI do you need and, and how much of it do you need? And I don't mean that do you need AI or do not need AI. But the way that it's delivered in your ecosystem is going to matter. If you believe that it's about getting people's hands into the tech and having the most relevant, capable tool for what they do day to day, how they work, then I think the the 
kind of relevance of the AI to the moment, to the job, to the task is going to become really important. And we're all just starting to think about that. So I think that's a, a, another emerging area. And then the last one I would hit, which is um, I'll come back to these essential eight technologies and the AI predictions that we're making. I, the essential eight technologies are fascinating to me because we, we talk about them in the eight, but the reality is they all intervene. So we've been talking about um, AI powered AR, for example, for a long time, and it's it's happening. And there's there's use, use cases all over the place. But if you think about in the car, you think about that at your home, you think about that when you're trying to fix something, you think about that when you're trying to find directions, and and more and more of our day to day is going to have additional uh, kind of capabilities that will be overlaid for our vision. However, that's going to happen over time. There's glasses and all kinds of things, but I think we should expect to see that the physical space, the physical things that we see, we're going to see physical and virtual coming together in a really, really intertwined way. Now, that might be not be 12 months, but it's certainly near-term horizon. And, and lastly, I would say, I think... Um, Everybody loves to to predict all kinds of disruptions. Again, coming to this something we talked about earlier in the in the podcast, which is people love to talk about the negatives and the and the risks. But I do think we're going to continue to see a pile, to use a technical term, just a pile of capabilities that get unlocked by this idea of generative AI paired with the right expertise and capability. I think we're going to see it in healthcare. I think we're going to see it in energy. I think we're going to see it in climate and automotive, in services. I think we will see it everywhere. And that will be a, a bit of a runaway train in a very positive way because I think it will all build on itself. And, and I think that's going to be very, very good for all of us. Yeah, I, I always like to ask, uh, ask that question at the end because if you ask a person from the 1900s what's, what's innovative, they'd say like a faster horse. Yeah. Right. So it's like it, it like maybe like 10 years from now, we'll be looking back at, at you and I talk and we're like, yeah, that was kind of a stupid prediction. <laughs> like we like the thing. Right, we'll come back. Like, we can hold each other back. accountable, Tony. We can do that. We'll hold each other yeah. accountable. See how close we got. I we 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 kicked off talking about uh, the internet and retail. And I, I tell this story a lot. Uh, and I, I will name a couple companies in this example, but early, early on, um, Sears Roebuck, um, I believe it was 9X or maybe one of the baby bells that are now part of a bigger company. Um, Sears Roebuck 9X, I think it might've been CompuServe, came together to form a company called Prodigy. And I might not have the, the, the companies right, but this was the early 90s. And their idea was everything that was in the Sears Roebuck catalog could be purchased online. And if you go back to your 1900s example, you could buy a house in the Sears Roebuck catalog that would show up on your bland and you could put it together, right? The famous Sears Craftsman houses. You think about the the power of that business model, but that the reality was the technology was not there yet. It just wasn't robust enough. It wasn't ubiquitous enough. It wasn't fast enough to actually take advantage of the moment. And that thing folded before the large retailers, the Amazons of the world emerged. And so as you look at this moment that we're all in in generative AI, no doubt there will be people that have the business model right, but the pace of innovation is such that they've got to connect it. We all have to connect it with the ability to make the thing that we see come alive at scale. And at scale may be one of the other phrases. It's the most overused phrase in business and in podcasts, but it's a really important one when you think about converting significant technology investments into return for shareholders, for society, for government, for individuals, for startups, for whomever you are in the ecosystem. It's all about taking, taking that investment and turning it into value. And that, that's about really thinking about whether all the pieces are in place and staying with it as those pieces come together. So Joe, what's like the big next hot thing for you? What are you going to do next? 
Yeah, so um, I will be at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, which is one of my favorite uh, conferences all around. So that's the end of February. So Barcelona is always a big thing, but but I'm excited because not surprisingly, AI is all over Barcelona. And I always have an opportunity to learn when you walk the halls in Barcelona and meet a lot of people I haven't seen in a while. So that's uh, that's what I'm looking forward to next. Great. Yeah. So if you guys are in there in that area, come uh, come by and take a look at Jill's booth. Oh, I'd love to. That'd be great. Come see you. Joe, thanks so much for being here. And until next time, stay curious.